Good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Micah. We'll be studying from there in just a moment, the book of Micah. I have really enjoyed looking through these, these Old Testament prophets. I hope that, that you have as well. And as we have strived to, to get an overview of what these books say, I hope that you will recognize that there's just not enough time in one sermon to really get into all the, the, the great truths that come out of these wonderful books. Um, these books should not be a, a section of the Bible that we are afraid to look at. They should be a section of the Bible that we recognize has great importance to our lives and also recognize that it wasn't written to us. And so it's important for us to remember uh, that, that these, are, these are Jewish people using Jewish idioms and, and Jewish speech patterns, and there's a lot of things that, that might seem a little strange in them, and especially a lot of things that are very figurative in them, but it's very beneficial for us to, to dig into these books and learn the message that they have so that we can learn from what was going on at that time and God's remedy to it uh, over and over again. Having said that, I hope that as we go through this study, that what you will do with these, these sermons is that you will use them to help you in your own private studies. As, as we get kind of an overview, a, a bird's eye view of what the book is about, that as you dig in further, you can keep that in mind as you look at some of the things that maybe don't get mentioned uh, in these lessons. The book of Micah is a, a book that I had a hard time figuring out what I wanted to, to really title this this series sermon about because there's so many different things that are brought up in the book. Uh, in fact, the name of the of the prophet Micah uh, literally means "Who is like Yahweh? Who is like God?" And that's going to be a a phrase that comes up again in the book. And so originally, as I was writing this, in fact, on my my sermon notes up here, it says Micah, who is like God. And that is one of the great lessons that comes from this book that Micah brings out to the people. Who is there that is like God? And look at what you have done, but look at who He is and don't, rem- and don't forget, don't fail to remember His covenant love. But also another main portion of the book of Micah has to do with this idea of acting, loving, and walking with your God. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we go into the book um, what has led the people to where they are at this time? And what is it that God requires of them? So the book Micah is another book that is written by a prophet that is what I would like to just call a, a, a country boy prophet. Much like Amos, these are guys that while we don't read of Micah you know, tending sheep and raising you know, fig trees and, and harvesting the fruit of those like we do of Amos, we find that Micah is from a small town. He is from Morasheth. And there's really nothing significant uh, that, that is going to, to come out of that except for maybe Micah himself. But what we find is just like Amos, this changes Micah's view from that of the people of the big cities. Big cities like Jerusalem and Samaria. In fact, Micah is going to spend a lot of time talking about Jerusalem and Samaria and really bringing a lot of the, the judgment messages that are going to be based upon these great cities. Um, and I think this probably leads to why Micah values things that maybe weren't being valued in those larger cities. He values the lowly and he values the helpless. If you look over in Micah chapter 4, verse 6, it says, In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame." And will gather the outcasts and those whom I have afflicted. He foretells that God is going to be gathering these people up. And that not only does he reflect the heart of God and much of his words and his actions for those who are needy, but in many ways we see the roots of God's plan to have a kingdom raised up which will care for truly needy souls of the world. Those who, are, those who are lame and afflicted, this idea of, of those who, who have been beaten down, those who have been trodden upon. And in this situation, it's very physically these people that have, have been hurt by the, the well-to-do of the world. But he's pointing towards a time when, when there will be a, a kingdom, there will be um, an institution helmed by God that cares for those who have been beaten down by Satan, those who have been beaten down by the sin of this world. So it should be no surprise then, as we think about Micah and his background, as we think about who he is, that we learn that 
that he is going to give a lot of words that are not really directed at one place or another. It, it, it is not like some of the other that go to Israel and they say, all right, this is everything pertaining to Israel. Or they go to Judah and say, all right, this is everything pertaining to Judah. Micah is, is just going to kind of blast the whole kingdom. He's going to hit the, the Samaria. He's going to hit Jerusalem. He's going to hit all sorts of places uh, in between. And he doesn't sweep anything else under the rug. He doesn't say, well, we're just, you know, some of the other prophets have went and talked about the Edomites and they've talked um, about the Ninevites. And he's not going to sweep everybody else under the rug. But what his focus is right now is as God's people as a whole. The northern tribes and the southern tribes, people that God expected uh, to, to be blessed by him and to use that blessing to help others to come and learn of him, are going to be within the crosshairs of Micah in this time. And just like in Amos, there's a call here of the world to come and to look at what God has done. This is what he's calling. He calls the leading cities to come and uh, to look at these two nations and to wake up and to return to true worship. And so, again, in the book of Micah, what we'll find is God's people are intended to be a light to the world. And they can choose to do that or God can make them be that. But one way or the other, God is going to be glorified in His creation. The time frame for the writing of this makes Micah a contemporary to other prophets like Isaiah and even Hosea. There are many times when Isaiah and Micah's words parallel each other completely and they describe the same actions of the people and oftentimes use the very same language when they do so. It's led some to say, well, Micah copied Isaiah or Isaiah copied Micah doesn't matter which one copied which one because both their messages came from God. This is how it happens. They were speaking them at the same time. Micah prophesies around the time uh, of, of the mid-700s. We don't know exactly the time frame, but we know that he speaks about, in Micah chapter 1 and verse 6, the ruining of Samaria. And so it hasn't happened yet, and we know that that dates back to around 723 B.C. So it's sometime prior to that, Micah has come and brought this message and saying these things are going to happen, and they're going to happen in the near future. Some of the things that he talks about aren't things that are separated by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Some of them are. In fact, some of them are separated by, by about 700 years. That's going to be important as we get towards the latter part of the book. But he's talking about the final days of the kingdom of Israel, and... In that time, it's interesting that he decides not to note kings. He's talking about a time when a kingdom has fallen, and he doesn't talk about this king or, or, or that king and how they, they have uh, led the people astray. Instead, he decides to, uh, or I should say, he doesn't talk about the kings of Israel, even though it's at the time of their fall. He doesn't talk about how the kings of Israel have set up this, this false worship, how the kings of Israel had led the people away from what truly God had demanded them to do in the temple in Jerusalem. He doesn't talk about how the kings had forced the people to literally turn their back on God so that they could go and worship these, the, at, at these other temples set up around. And, and even though he prophesies quite a bit about the fall of, of Israel, he's going to focus his, his, his words on the kings of Judah. Because Judah is still in this mock judge scenario. You remember the judgment uh, cycle that the people of God, they, they would be faithful to God and then they would fall away and then God would raise up an oppression and they would cry out to Him and He would raise up a judge and they would be, be, be saved from that and then they would just repeat the cycle over and over again. Judah's still in that cycle. Judah still, they, they will be... They will, be wicked for a while and something will happen and a king will come along and they'll say, we need to turn back to God and they'll, they'll turn back. And so he, he focuses a lot of his words down uh, in, in this book towards the, the kings of Judah. Uh, kings that seem to swing back and forth. Uh, Jotham, for example. Jotham is one of the kings that, uh, that is mentioned early on in the book in, in chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. And Jotham is deemed a good king, but, but we see a quick swing right back when his son Ahaz takes control. Ahaz is, is quite opposite of, of Jotham. He's not a good king at all, but yet we sing a swing again when his son Hezekiah comes in. Turn the people back to the Lord and pray that God would rescue them. In fact, is, is likely credited with the, the fact that Assyria doesn't take them into captivity when Assyria comes in and wipes out much of the northern kingdom and takes a lot of the southern kingdom as well. But, but is, Jerusalem is spared. And so we, we see this and we think, well, that's, that's, that's an interesting it's interesting things, but what does that really mean for me? What's the significance to me in the book of Micah? Why should I study the book of Micah? The book of Micah contains 
some of the most vivid prophecies about the coming of Christ. Some of the most vivid prophecies about the book of, coming of Christ come from the book of Micah. And it's easy for us to read this book and say, that just seems a whole lot like Amos you know, 2.0, even though it happens at a different time. It was a little bit earlier. But it seems a whole lot like just, this is Amos uh, language all over again. But Micah uses this language to bring about the realization that a Messiah is coming. A ruler, a leader is coming, and, and they need to know this. And, and where is he going to come from? He's going to come from, the, he's going to come from Judah. He's going to come from uh, the, 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 the king there. The, uh, he's going to come from the descendant of David. And so that they need to know, look, this is where God has promised. This is where it's coming. And look where you all are leading everything. Look at the influence that you are putting on the city and on the people. And God is not going to ignore that. And certainly God... God is, is not going to bring His, his leader, his, his Messiah, out of that. And so He's going to come and bring judgment upon you, and He's going to make a remnant, and He's going to purify. We also see in this section that the people are going to be then taught by this Messiah. This Messiah that is coming, this Messiah that is, that is prophesied to be here in the future is a Messiah that's going to come and is going to teach the people properly. Whereas the king had not been doing so, the priests had not been doing so, this new Messiah who we are going to find is going to be prophet, priest, and king is going to stand in the place of the people and bring them the news and knowledge of God that they needed to be righteous before Him. Mike also paints a beautiful picture in Micah chapter 4, of a time when nations are going to unite together. He talks about a time when nations are going to put their weapons aside and they will be joined together in chapter 4, in verses 3 through 5. He says, You shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk, each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of our Lord, uh, of the Lord our God, forever and ever. Now, again, this is why I said it's important for us when we read these books to remember that these are Jewish people writing to other Jewish people using Jewish language and Jewish idioms, and, and this is very much figurative language. And sometimes we read this and, and it's mistaken by people to say, oh, there's this millennial kingdom that is coming and it's going to be established on the earth and everybody is going to be in subjection to the ruler of in, in Israel, to, to the Christ that will come again, and, and he's got to set that kingdom up and let it reign for a thousand years. We need to remember that this language is a promise of something that is coming and has already come. A promise that is something that is coming when, when the kingdom of God will be established on the earth and it is a picture of the church. But it is very similar. It's easy to say, well, that's already happened. But there's aspects of the Bible that, that while may be true, yes, they say, has this happened? It has, but maybe not fully. Maybe not quite yet. What do you mean by that? And I said, well, turn over to Revelation 21. We'll just hold our place here for a minute because we're going to come back, and I promise we're going, to, we're going to get into this overview. But as we set some of these early things up, we'll turn over to Revelation 21. And when you read through verses 9 through 27, over and over again, you find this picture of the bride of Christ being depicted as a, a radiant city from heaven. But notice in verse, uh, in verse 22, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that deviles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Very similar. What John is describing at the close of, of the revelation of Jesus Christ is this city that the nations will gather into in glory and there will be peace. You know, we'll have gates. We won't even have to shut them. You know, people talk all the time. Well, I remember a day when I didn't have to lock my doors. Do you remember a day when you just left all your doors wide open all day long? 
He says there's coming a time when there will be no need to even have gates anymore. We won't need them because nothing that defiles, nothing that is an abomination before the Lord will enter into this city. And so, yes, a lot of this language that we read here, it's figurative. It can be difficult. We can get lost in the weeds trying to figure out what every little detail of it means. We can recognize the the greater message that He is bringing. And that is, there has been sin in His people. There have been sin in, in the nation that He established. He has brought them into the kingdom. And they have set up the kingdom and there are gates and those gates have to be shut because there is sin in this kingdom. And because of that, judgment is going to come. But through that judgment, there is going to be a restoration of the people. There's going to be a remnant that is spared. And through that remnant is coming a Messiah. A Messiah that's going to teach. A Messiah that's going to bring people to a better understanding, a better knowledge of who God is because He's going to explain God to them. He's going to instill a new kingdom, a kingdom that means to bring peace to the world, and that is going to be ultimately fulfilled in heaven. So let's get back to Micah then. And let's get into this book. Because this is what Micah is trying to drive our minds towards as he goes through this book. And and we see three things that are going to be repeated over and over again. That is sin, judgment, and restoration. But the problem is, he just goes back and forth through this whole book. I remember as I I read through this, I just kept thinking, all right, here's here's talking about sin. But then he just jumps over now. I'm going to talk about restoration. Then I'm going to jump back over here to judgment. And he just kind of bounces around. And it's really hard to track down the words of Micah. But there are three specific breaks that can help us do that. And they're all heralded by the phrase, here. Here, in in Micah chapter 1 and verse 2, Hear, all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you and the Lord from His holy temple. Again, in Micah 3 and verse 1, And I said, hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? And then also Micah 6, 1 and 2. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint. And you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against His people, and He will contend with Israel. People, rulers, and the land are called upon Hear what the Lord has to say. And this sort of breaks up the book of Micah for us, and it's kind of how we're going to break it up as we study through it. And so let's look at the first two chapters together. And ultimately what we find in chapters 1 and 2 is judgment is coming on the people, and judgment is coming because of the sins of the people. I already mentioned much of this is going to be focused on the sins of Jerusalem, the sins of Samaria. But the other towns, as I said, they're not ignored either. If you look down in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16... Listen to what he says here. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Beth Ephrah. Roll yourself in the dust. Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitant of Shafir. The inhabitant of Zanan does not go out. Beth Ezel mourns its places to stand is taken away from you. For the inhabitants of Marath pined for good, but disaster came down from the Lord. To the gate of Jerusalem, O inhabitant of Lachish, harness the chariot of the swift steeds. She was the beginning of sin to the daughters of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you shall give present to the Moresheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. So he does it. As I said, he's going to focus on Jerusalem and Samaria, but he also brings in a lot of other cities. What's interesting is we completely miss his message when we don't know the meaning of any of those cities. These are Hebrew words, and he is painting pictures with them. And I I would encourage you sometime, get a concordance, get a Bible dictionary out, and just look these up. Look up the names of these words. We're not going to talk about all of them. But look up the names of these words and look at what he says about them. For example, he tells the inhabitants of Bethlehem to roll in the dust. Bethlehem literally means city of dust. He, he picks them out and says, yeah, city of dust, you go roll in the dust because of your wickedness. The city of Shafir means, city of, it means beauty or fairness. And he says to them, he says, pass by in nakedness and shame. 
But the one that I really thought was neat was the last one that he mentions, and that is adulam. Adulam means justice of the people. The city of Adullam is the city of justice of the people. You might also remember Adullam because that's the place where David went to hide in the caves in the hill country because of the persecution of Saul. When Saul was chasing him, he goes and he hides in the caves of Adullam. And so, very much so, Micah tells them the glory of Israel will be hidden in the justice of the people, will be hidden. In fact, it's almost like he's telling them, you're not going to be able to find it. You're going to be looking for justice. It's going to be hidden in the caves. It's going to be gone. You're not going to be able to find it because of the sin of the people. And in chapter 2, in verse 10, he declares to them, this, this coming judgment, it's not for your rest. And I think sometimes we miss that about judgment. We read judgment and we think fire and brimstone. We read judgment and we think God's great anger and wrath descends upon the wickedness of His city. That's not how David always viewed judgment. David called for judgment often because he recognized, yes, judgment is wrath on the wicked, but it is salvation for those that are righteous. It is salvation for those that lean upon God. And we need to make sure that we always see both sides of judgment. That it's not just about wrath. It's also about salvation, about, about saving those that are faithful to God. But in Micah chapter 2, and verse 10, he says, this is not your rest. Arise and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is defiled, it shall destroy. Yes, with utter destruction. He tells them, because of your sins, is the cause of their defilement, and because of that defilement, judgment is coming. And for me, it brings back memories. It brings back memories of a time when the children of Israel stood in this land early on, not having conquered it, not having uh, run out their enemies. They stood early on and they went up on the two mountains, Mount, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And they shouted blessings and cursings to one another. And they reminded themselves, if we are faithful to God, if we will keep all the words that He has given us, then we will last long in this land and we will prosper and we will be profited. But if we depart from His words... And if we go after the gods of this land, and if we turn our hearts away from the Lord, we will be defiled and we will be cast out of it. He's reminding them, this is happening because of you. You have brought this upon yourselves. You can't blame God. You can't blame anybody else. You have done this to yourself. And they needed to see why all this was happening. And so he's going to continue then calling their minds to hear. But specifically now in chapters 3-5, through five, he says leaders hear what needs to be said. In chapter 3, 1-4, through four, I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. They, then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not hear them. He will not even hide His face from them at that time because they have done, been evil in their deeds. So he describes the way the rulers have influenced his people with cannibalistic depictions. He said, you have destroyed this people for your own gain. You have destroyed this people so you can lift yourself up. You have led these people astray so that you can fill yourself with mighty mansions and, and make your name broad. And, and we see a lot of that in the, in the kings. It's exactly what God told the people would happen when they said, we want a king. And He said, that you have a king and He's going to lead you astray and He's going to tax you and He's going to do everything to glorify Himself. That's exactly what has happened. And He curses. Now, He, he reminds the rulers. He says, look at what you've done. And at this time, we, this is written during the time I mentioned of, of Jotham and Hezekiah, but sandwiched right in between them is that King Ahaz. Uh, Ahab, excuse me. Ahab is that... Uh, infamous king who, who was so wicked, teamed up with, that, with his wife Jezebel, who did so many terrible things. But specifically, it draws my mind an account where Ahab goes in and he meets this man Naboth, and he says, I like your vineyard. I would like to have it. Naboth says, no, I can't sell it to you. It's, it's for my family. And Ahab more or less 
goes home, throws himself on the floor, kicking and screaming and whining and throwing a huge temper tantrum like, like a little child because he didn't get his vineyard. His wife comes in and she says, look at you, you're pitiful. You're the king. You march back down there and you say, I'm going to take it. And if you have any resistance, you just kill him and you take it. Which is exactly what Ahab does. He goes back and he kills Naboth, says, this is my vineyard, I'll take it. It's exactly the sort of thing that, that God is bringing out in the days of Micah. Look at your rulers. People who should love good. You don't love good, you love evil. And you destroy my people for your own sake and for your own benefit. And then he turns in verse 5 and says, but you're not the only ones to be blamed. He turns right around in verse 5 and says, and where are the prophets in all of this? Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. They chanted peace while things were, were good for them. So many, many commentators and many translations make it sound like, and, and very much is probably the truth, that as long as their bellies were fed, as long as they were taken care of, everything is good. Guys, don't, don't worry about the, what the king is doing. It's, it's okay. We live in peaceful times. Don't worry about what all the people are doing and about the other. You know, we, have, we have Asherah poles, and we have people that are worshiping the Baals, and we have all of these different sorts of, of things going on. They look evil, but... But really, everything is peaceful. Just, just focus on that. And they're not speaking the truth. And they're not standing up for the truth because things are well for them. But as soon as things aren't, as soon as you, bring up, as soon as you threaten their well-being, oh man, now it's jihad. Now it's a holy war and I'm waging it against you. And that's one way to read that. But it's interesting that the New King James, the King James, and also the New American Standard render this a little bit differently. New American Standard says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, when they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. And the King James Version says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry peace. Um, in the New American Standard, they add the word sometimes, or something, I should say, because that sentence just doesn't make a lot of sense without it. But it's a word that is added in nonetheless. Without it, it would say, when they have to bite with their teeth. And that has led some to say, maybe this isn't just them saying, you know, whenever things are really good for me, I'll, I'll say everything is good in the world, and everything is peaceful, and we're, God is happy, and, and we have nothing to worry about. Maybe it's akin to the fact that the words that they used bit almost like the way a snake bites. Like their words were dripping with poison, as they, as, they, as they spoke to the people about how good things were. And I have to say, I kind of lean towards the first view, that things were going good and so they were shouting for peace. But I want to say that that's, that's very similar to the words of Jesus. When He approached the people that should have been leading and teaching the people in His day, and they were leading them astray, and their words were dripping with poison, and He said, you brood of vipers. Same thing that John the Baptist described the Pharisees as as well in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, and Matthew 23, 33. You brood of vipers. You're not telling the truth. You're not presenting the truth. And so you are to be blamed. In fact, Jesus tells the, the Pharisees, whenever you proselytize, when you bring somebody in to believe and to think like you, not only are you not telling the truth, you're making them twice as son, as a son of hell as you are. Because you're so full of wickedness and lies. And see, Micah is different. Micah is saying, I am very different from these prophets. I'm very different from the, the lies that these prophets say. Just everything is good, everything is peaceful. In fact, verse 8, he says, I... After telling them what, the, what these evil prophets do, he says, I am full of the power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. There are only a handful of statements. There are only a handful of statements in the Scripture that are, that are like this, that are like this statement that Micah makes here. He is amongst some of the greatest 
greatest men of the Bible who have spoken something similar to this. Words, phrases that just drip with power and boldness. You know, Kyle, on Wednesday night, he spoke about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And about how Paul was was willing to speak openly and boldly in terrible situations. And even to these people in the Corinthians, he says, when they go, look, we need a letter of recommendation. And he writes back to them and says, you're my letter of recommendation. I don't need to write to you and commend myself. Your lives are a commendation of my work. There's just so many, only so many handfuls of men in the Bible that can make statements like that. One that comes to my mind is Joshua. In Joshua 24 and 15, he says, Choose who you will serve today, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's easy for us to just take those statements, rip them out and plaster them on a wall, put them on a coffee mug, forget just how difficult that statement was to say. People that that are being called to do really hard things in a time when it's really hard to speak up and say something like that, and they are filled with boldness. And Micah, at a time when the prophets around him are are chanting peace, when there's nothing, nothing, no peace at all, can get up and say something like, I'm not like them. I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. I'm full of justice and might to tell Israel, to tell the house of Jacob about their sin. We need to see more signs like that on houses and on coffee mugs, plastered on our hearts, because that's what we're called to be. That's what Paul is calling us to be. Be bold because of your hope, is what he's calling us to be. Jeremiah says the same thing when, in Jeremiah 6.11 as he goes to the same group of people, an unruly, ungodly, rebellious people, and he says, I am full of power, I am full of the wrath of God, and I am weary from holding it in. He said, I've got the truth and it needs to be said and I'm tired of being kept shut. I'm letting God's Word out. That's what Micah is doing here. Micah says, I'm nothing like these prophets because I'm here to tell you the truth. And the truth is, judgment is coming because of your sin. I have come and I have come to stand out and I have come to stand out with boldness. But he also says, even though I've come to stand out, and even though your prophets and your leaders are to be blamed, again, remembering our shifts, there's sin and there's judgment, but there's restoration. God is going to restore the righteousness in the land. But the way He's going to do it, He says, I'm going to make a remnant for Myself. And that remnant's going to come from Babylon. And we're going to find that happening in the future in the days of Ezra and the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. But it's going to be a lot of pain in between them. They're going to feel like they've been abandoned, like they've been lost, like God has left them. But He's telling them in these, in these chapters, the Lord is going to reign in Zion. Chapter 4 is focused on that. It's focused on a future reign. Uh, starting around verse 6, And that day, as we already read, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, I will... Uh, those whom I have afflicted, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. He said that there's going to be this coming restoration. It's going to happen. But how it's going to happen is going to be that remnant that comes from exile and that exile is going to lead them to conquering. I don't think any of the remnant in Babylon, you read through Ezekiel, they didn't feel like they were conquering anything. In fact, as Ezekiel talks to them over and over again, God has to tell Ezekiel, tell this people that they need to get their act together. This is happening because of their sin. And tell this people that what's going on in Jerusalem is not better. You're the better ones. I've taken you out of the judgment. What's happening, what left in Jerusalem is being destroyed. You're the remnant. But you've got to get your act together. You can't continue walking in that way. And I'm going to be the one to do that. I'm going to bring new life to these dead bones. I'm going to bring grace. And as much as it takes, a trickling stream to a raging river doesn't matter. I'm going to be the one to do that. He's telling them, you're going to be the ones that conquer. But it sure doesn't feel like it. And it's not going to happen in just 70 years. 
we're going to find them go back and be defeated again. Can't even get the temple built back right away. Have to have, to have more and more efforts to do that. And the wall finally gets built back. And, and even once all that happens, the people, as we read through Nehemiah, the people don't really completely repent and go back. They'll, they'll make some changes and it looks good for a while. And then Nehemiah's gone and they go right back into their old ways. And it's going to take a long time for everything that he's talking about to come about. In fact, all of this is written 700 years before the coming of Christ. But I want you to note some of the things that he starts doing in chapter, in chapter 4. He's saying the remnant is going, to, is going to conquer. There's going to be a new kingdom. And he's laying a foundation for everything that he's about to proclaim in chapter 5, starting in verse 2. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. So I'm going to set up a new kingdom and I'm going to be kingdom and rule over Zion and the ruler is going to come out of Bethlehem. 700 years before Christ is born in Bethlehem. I said some of these things that he tells them, they're going to happen very soon. Within the next uh, several years, we're going to find Assyria wiping out the northern kingdom. Some of these things are a little bit further off. Babylon takes a little while to get there. Some of these things are just downright way down the road. But yet every word that he spoke comes true. 300 prophecies are made of the life of Christ throughout the Old Testament. This is just a handful of them. Every word that was spoken came true and was fulfilled. You know, people can look at the world around them and say, I, I honestly can't understand how we can say this world came here without some intelligent being's hand in it. I just, I look at, at you know, we watched, we watched something about, uh, about Yellowstone the other night, and that if you just take one aspect out of Yellowstone, if you just take the wolves out, Yellowstone falls apart because the wolves control the elk population. And the elk population eat the trees that the beavers use to make their dams. And if, if the elk population grows too big, the trees get, uh, die off, the beavers die, their dams disappear, the trout that use those dams to live, they die. One creature, and that just happened by accident, just so happened over billions and billions of years, one organism decided somehow I'll turn into a wolf and make everything work perfectly. People look at creation, they go, you know what? You're right. I have a hard time buying. Even sci There's many scientists that say, I have a hard time buying. This just happened by accident. I will believe in God, but I'm not sure I can believe the God of the Bible. Then explain to me 300 prophecies. 300 individual statements written over many different years by many different people, all speaking of the same occurrence hundreds and even thousands of years before it happened. Every single one of them being fulfilled in one person. The odds of that are astronomical. They're improbable. There's no statistician that looks at that and says, that may have happened by chance. The God of the Bible repeatedly reveals Himself as the awesome God that can be trusted. Verse 3. Think about what He says in verse 3. Of chapter 5, he says, Give them, uh, therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. So, prior to all of this happening, he's saying there's a ruler coming, but he's saying until he gets there, the children of Israel are going to be in pain. He describes it as labor that won't end. And we know it's not going to end for 700 years. Can you imagine labor pain for 700 years? I don't think any of us can. I think our wives maybe can, can begin to fathom that. But eventually, you know what happens whenever you're in a great deal of pain over time and time. And eventually, what maybe started out as a 10, you begin to grow calluses. You begin to grow the, the, the nerves of that area of the body. They begin to go numb. They begin to be overstimulated and they don't feel that anymore. And over time, what was a really painful pain maybe is, is kind of dull. 
And yes, you grow very weak and you're not able to, to do the things you once were, but maybe the pain just isn't quite as there anymore. You know what fascinates me? Just as much, just as much in 700 years that, that God announced that, that Christ would come from Bethlehem, at the same time, He says there's going to be pain and there's going to be hardships until that comes. And the world around Him, the world around Israel, the, 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 His people, they become callous to that. By the time Christ does come on the scene, these 700 years later, they have become so callous to the pain that they just, this is what our world is now. And when He comes and He says, I am the healer, I am the one that's gathering the lame, they say, I'm not lame. I'm a Pharisee. I have the righteousness. I have the power. What, what just fascinates me is not the people who became calloused. It's the people like Simon and Anna who it says were still looking. After all this time, they'd said, this is not what life was meant to be. This is not the glory that God wants for His people. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, runs to him. And what are his words? He says, we have found the Messiah. People that are still looking. People that know the world is messed up and it is because of sin. But God is coming. He is going to send someone to save us from that and their heart and their minds are still open to that. They didn't allow themselves to be callous. That amazes me. That just fascinates me. And so I have to ask myself today, when I look at the terrible things that go on in our own nation, in our own communities around us, things that sound very similar to what this minor prophet is talking about, leaders that don't care about God, only care about themselves, prophets, people that are supposed to be bringing the Word of God to, to the world, and they're just going to fill the world with poison and with lies, and so many people are following that, and it's so easy just to become calloused. But don't. Recognize that Christ is returning. And yes, we feel the pangs of childbirth, but we're waiting desperately to be delivered by the coming of the Lord. And so that brings us in to some of the most beautiful language in the book. But it's going to start in chapter 6 with this question. So what does God want? What does the Lord require? He begins by inviting the world, as we have already read. Plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. And the Lord is a complaint against His people, and He will contend with Israel. He says, come in all the land and hear what the Lord has done in the past. But he's also going to tell them, remember my love for this people. As he goes in in verses 3 through 5, and he reminds them, remember what I've done. I've been faithful. And, and when he talks about his love and his kindness and his mercy, he's talking about his covenants. He says, remember my covenantial love for my spouse, for, for my, my children of Israel. Remember my faithfulness. And when you look at all that God has done, and you look at the majesty and the might Hopefully you're left with the same question that, that, is, paid, that is brought up in, chapter, in verse 6. What shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the holy God? And I want you to think about the, the things that he brings up. He says, should I come before Him with burnt offerings? He's called for that. What about with calves a year old? He's called for, for, for the, the, the firstborn. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Now we're getting a little bit exaggerated here. What about with the death of a firstborn? What if I give my firstborn for my transgressions? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. We used to read this and we think the author of this, the, the writer of this is just getting ridiculous. A thousand rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, a firstborn son. Who would ever do that? Well, those words echo in my mind because even if I brought all of that to God, would it ever be enough to cover my sins? And how does He, want, how does he respond? He doesn't respond with, yeah, that and then some more. He says, no. You come and you do justly and you act with justice 
you love mercy, and you walk humbly with the God. Would they do these things? Would they sacrifice? And would they give their offerings? And would they just, just overflow with, with what God has commanded of them? Would it change anything with who they were? No. Because at their heart, they loved evil and they hated good. But he says, if you would walk with humility, if you would love mercy instead of love getting what you feel like you deserve and thinking about yourself, if you would act justly, your actions will be justified, then sacrifice and offerings that are right to God, those things would flow out. That would be pleasing to Him. And I find it similar today that people are just bewildered when we say to them, you must be baptized. We must be baptized. We must be a part of the church to be saved. We, we must have our sins washed away in baptism. We must be connected to the kingdom of Christ in some way to, to stand before God. And, and, and we might even go to all the passages and someone might pull this out and say, but wait a minute, what about this? It's not God. God doesn't require baptism. He doesn't require uh, church attendance. He doesn't require prayer. The only thing He requires is that I act justly, I love mercy, and I walk humbly with Him. But I would go back to this passage. And I would say that what God required of them was to add these things to their worship. He has already demanded you worship Him. In the Ten Commandments, He calls them to worship Him. And He tells them to, to not just you know, worship would be nice, not just that obedience is optional. He says you are to do these things and you are to do them out of love. You are to do them when they flow out of a love for justice. You are to do them when they flow out of a love for mercy. You are to do them when they flow out of love for Him. The verse doesn't say, I don't want any of the sacrifices that you're talking about. He says, good and go on to say, I don't want some sort of, 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 of gift from you in obedience. It says, I want the right gift. I want the right worship. And the right kind of worship and the right kind of obedience is not just, well, okay, I'll check all these things off. I made my sacrifices. I gave some oil. There's a firstborn child that I dedicated to the service of the Lord. I did all these things. I'm good before God. I can go out and I can cheat my neighbor. I can go out and do these things. Likewise, I, I, I was baptized. I came to church today. I said my prayers. I can go do what I want. He says, no. I want people that love and that are just and that are humble. And people like that will look at what I've commanded and not be, have to be told, you should do this and you should do this and you should do this. They, should, they will want to. If we don't want to obey God, can we truly say that we're acting, loving, and walking with Him? And with those words, He begins to close this book. And in verses 1-6, through six, he, he cries. He laments. This is what Israel has been reduced to. And when you read through chapter 7, you read through it, and I guarantee you, you go, I've seen that in our headlines in our newspapers. I've seen these attitudes before. But in verse 7, he starts a contrast. He says, Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. How easy would it be to become discouraged in this time? He says, I'm, the world is terrible. It's, it's heartbreaking to him. This nation that he's a part of is terrible. That's not where my identity and that's not where my value comes from. I will lean upon God. And so verses 8-17 through 17 are kind of a, 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 a confession, so to speak, maybe of the remnant that is left over. They confess their own sins and their trust in God. And verses 18-20, through 20, the last three verses of the Bible, truly the most beautiful words in the book, begin, as I told you, Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. He begins, who is a God like you? hardening iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. He, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea and you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. So what do we find then? 
what do we find in, in the closing of this book? That God has a relationship with our sin. He subdues them and He casts them away. His love is enough to do more than just simply overlook our sin. I think that's sometimes what we want. Is God, just, just, just ignore my sin. Overlook it. Instead, He focuses in on it. He focused in on it so much that His, his, his wrath and also His mercy and compassion were, were pricked. That He said, I've got to do something about this. And so He gave us a way for our sins to be subdued. That we would not walk according to the flesh. We might walk according to the power and the justice and the might of the Spirit of God. And then He cast those sins away. He doesn't keep a bank of them. He doesn't have a ledger that says, alright, I remember that you did this one on this day and you did this one back here and I haven't forgot about those things. Things that have been repented of. Things that have been brought before God and begging for forgiveness. Things that have been placed at the foot of the cross that the blood of Christ can be washed over us. God forgets. He leaves behind. I can't dream of trying to walk before my God with a ledger of my past sins and transgressions over my head. And that's exactly what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For the love of Christ controls us. We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him for their sake, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. God has made us a new creation because He focused on our sin. Because He cared enough to send His Son in to this world because of our sin. And Micah ends the book in verse 20 with the promise. With the promise. You will. You will what? You will give truth and you will give mercy. He did exactly that. He did it in Christ. Christ is, is the source of God's mercy, is the source of God's truth. And today we live in a world that continues to rebel, continues to be cast into sin and, and, and to, to choose to turn from God and to walk in its own path. But there is still a source of truth and there is still a source of mercy. And it is still found in Christ. We can become a part of His kingdom we can be transformed and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And being in Christ is the only way to find that truth and that mercy and real life in the Father. And so if we can assist you today in coming to Him, let the words of Micah to a nation so far removed from us, but so similar to the world around us, remind us of the mercy of God. Remind us that the promises are true today. If we can help you in any way, won't you please come forward as we stand and as we sing.